Chapter Sixteen, Part Two of My Life on the Plains. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The exact distance he would have to ride in order to reach General Sheridan's headquarters at Camp Supply could not be determined. The command had occupied four days in accomplishing it, but California Joe, with his thorough knowledge of the country and the experience of our march, would be able to follow a much more direct route than a large command moving with a train. He did not seem in the least disturbed when told of his selection for this errand so full of danger. When informed that he might name the number of men to accompany him, I suppose he would say about twelve or more, under command of a good non-commissioned officer. Very few persons in or out of the military service would have cared to undertake the journey with much less than ten times that force. But he contented himself by informing me that, before answering that question, he would walk down to where the scouts were in camp and consult with his partner. He soon returned, saying, I've just been talking the matter over with my partner, and him and me both concludes that as safe and sure way as any is for him and me to take a few extra rounds of ammunition and strike out from here together the very minute it's dark. As for any more men, we don't want em, because you see, in a case of this here kind, there's more to be made by dodging and running than there is by fighting and two sprite men can do better at that than twenty. They can't be seen half as fur. Besides, two won't leave as much a trail for the Injuns to find. If my partner and me can get away from here as soon as it's plumb dark, we'll be so fur from here by daylight tomorrow morning. The Injuns never couldn't touch hide nor hair of us. Besides, I don't reckon the pesky varmints will be so overly keen in meddlin' with our business, seein' as how they got their hands tolerable full, settin' things to rights at home, owin' to the little visit we just made em. I rather spect all things considerin' them Injuns would be powerful glad to call it quits for a spell anyway, and if I ain't off the trail mightily, some of them ere-head chiefs as ain't killed will be headin' for the highest peace commissioner before they get the war paint clean off their faces. This thing of pumpin' em when the snow's a foot deep and no grass for their ponies puts a new wrinkle in these Injuns scalpin', and they ain't gonna get over it in a minute either. Well, I'm goin' back to the boys and see if I can borrow a little smokin' tobacco. I may want to take a smoke on the way. Whenever you get your documents ready, just send your orderly down there, and me and my partner will be ready. I'm mighty glad I'm going tonight, for I know General Sheridan will be monstrously glad to see me back so soon. Did I tell you I used to know the general when he was second or third lieutenant, a post quartermaster in Oregon? That must have been before your time. Leaving California Joe to procure his tobacco i assembled all the officers of the command and informed them that as there was but an hour or two in which i was to write my report of the battle of the washita i would not have time as i should have preferred to do to send to them for regular and formally written reports of their share in the engagement but in order that i might have the benefit of their combined knowledge of the battle and its results each officer, in response to my request, gave me a brief summary of some of the important points which his report 
would have contained if submitted in writing. With this information in my possession, I sat down in my tent and penned in as brief a manner as possible a report to General Sheridan detailing our movements from the time Elliot with his three companies discovered the trail up to the point from which my dispatch was written giving particular and main facts of our discovery, attack, and complete destruction of the village of Black Kettle. It was just about dark when I finished this dispatch and was able to send for California Joe when that loquacious personage appeared at the door of my tent. I'm not so anxious to leave you all here, but the fact is the sooner me and my partner are off, I reckon the better it'll be in the end. I want to put at least fifty miles between me and this place by daylight tomorrow morning, so if you just hurry up your papers, it'll be a lift for us. On going outside the tent, I saw that the partner was the scout Jack Corbin, the same who had first brought this intelligence of Elliot's discovery of the trail to us at Antelope Hills. He was almost the antipodes of California Joe in regards to many points of character, seldom indulging in a remark or suggestion unless prompted by a question. These two scouts recalled to my mind an amicable arrangement said to exist between a harmonious married pair in which one was willing to do all the talking, and the other was perfectly willing he should. The two scouts who were about to set out to accomplish a long journey through an enemy's country with no guide save the stars, neither ever having passed over the route they proposed to take, and much of the ride to be executed during the darkness of night, apparently felt no greater, as if great, anxiety as to the result of their hazardous mission than one ordinarily feels in contemplating a journey of a few hours by rail or steamboat. California Joe was dressed and equipped as usual. About his waist and underneath his cavalry greatcoat and cap he wore a belt containing a Colt revolver and a hunting knife. These, with his inseparable companion, a long Springfield breech-loading rifle, composed his defensive armament. His partner, Jack Corbin was very similarly arrayed, except in equipment. His belt contained two revolvers instead of one, while a Sharps carbine supplied the place of a rifle, being more readily carried and handled on horseback. The mounts of the two men were as different as their characters. California Joe confiding his safety to the transporting powers of his favorite mule while Corbin was placing his reliance on a fine gray charger. Acquainting the men with the probable route we should pursue in our onward march towards Camp Supply, so that, if desirable, they might be able to rejoin us, I delivered my report to General Sheridan into the keeping of California Joe, who, after unbuttoning numerous coats, blouses, and vests, consigned the package to one of the numerous capacious inner pockets with which each garment seemed supplied, with the remark, I reckon it'll keep dry there in case of rain or accident. Both men having mounted, I shook hands with them, wishing them Godspeed and a successful journey. As they rode off into the darkness, California Joe, irrepressible to the last, called out, 
Well, I hope and trust ye won't have any screamage while I'm gone, because I'd hate mightily now to miss anything of the sort, seeing I'm stuck to ye for this fur. After enjoying a most grateful and comparatively satisfactory night's rest, the demands of hunger on the part of man and beast having been bountifully supplied from the stores contained in our train, while a due supply of blankets and robes with the assistance of huge campfires enabled the men to protect themselves against the intense cold of midwinter. Our march was resumed at daylight in the direction of Camp Supply. Our wounded had received every possible care and attention that a skillful and kind-hearted medical officer could suggest. Strange to add, and greatly to our surprise as well as joy, Colonel Barnett's, who had been carried into the village, shot through the body, and, as all supposed mortally wounded, with apparently but a few minutes to live, had not only survived the rough jostling of the night march made after leaving the village, but the surgeon, Dr. Lippincott, who was unceasing in his attention to the wounded, reported indications favorable to a prolongation of life, if not a complete recovery. This was cheering news to all of the comrades of Colonel Barnett's. I well remember how, when the colonel was first carried by four of his men in the folds of an army blanket into the village, his face wore that pale, deathly aspect, so common and peculiar to these mortally wounded. He, as well as all who saw him, believe his end near at hand. But like a brave soldier, he was and had proven himself to be, death had no terrors for him. When asked by me, as I knelt at the side of the litter of which he was gasping for breath, whether he had any messages to send to absent friends, he realized the perils of his situation, and in half-finished sentences mingled with regrets, delivered as he and all of us supposed, his farewell messages to be transmitted to the dear ones at home. And yet, despite the absence of that care and quiet, not to mention little delicacies and luxuries regarded as so essential, and which would have been obtainable under almost any other circumstances, Colonel Barnett's continued to improve, and before many weeks his attendant medical officer was able to pronounce him out of danger, although to this day he is, and for the remainder of life will be, disabled from further active duty, the ball by which he was wounded having severed one of his ribs in such a manner as to render either riding or the wearing of a sabre or revolver too painful to be endured. By easy marches we gradually neared Camp Supply, and had begun to descend the long slope leading down to the valley of Wolf Creek, the stream on which we had encamped three nights when we first set out from Camp Supply in search of Indians. With two or three of the Osage guides and as many of the officers, I was riding some distance in advance of the column of troops, and could indistinctly see the timber fringing the valley in the distance when the attention of our little party was attracted to three horsemen, who were to be seen riding slowly along near the edge of the timber. As yet they evidently had not observed us, the troops behind us not having appeared in view. We were greatly at a loss to determine who the three horsemen might be. They were yet too distant to be plainly visible to the eye, and the orderly with my field glass was still in the rear. 
While we were halting and watching their movements, we saw that they had also discovered us, one of their number riding up to a small elevation near by from which to get a better view of our group. After studying us for a few moments, he returned at a gallop to his two companions, when all three tuned their horses toward the timber and moved rapidly in that direction. We were still unable to determine whether they were Indians or white men, the distance being so great between us when my orderly arrived with my field glass by which I was able to catch a glimpse of them just as they were disappearing in the timber, when whose familiar form should be revealed but that of California Joe, urging his mule to its greatest speed in order to reach the timber before we should discover them. They had evidently taken us for Indians, and, well, they might, considering that two of our party were Osages, and the others were dressed in anything but their regulation uniform. To relieve the anxious minds of California Joe and his companions, I put spurs to my horse, and I was soon bounding down the plains leading into the valley to join them. I had not proceeded over halfway when the scouts rode cautiously out from the timber, and California Joe, after shading his eyes with his hands and looking for a few moments, raised his huge sombrero from his matted head, and waving it above him as a signal of recognition, pressed his great Mexican spurs deep into the sides of his humble-looking steed. If a mule may receive such an appellation, and... The three scouts were soon galloping towards us. The joy at the meeting was great on both sides, only dampened somewhat on the part of California Joe by the fact that he and his comrades had taken to the timber so promptly when first they discovered us. But he explained it by saying, I counted on it being you all the time when I first got my eyes on you, until I saw two Injuns in the squad, and forgetting all about them old sages we had along, I jumped at the conclusion that if there war any Injuns around, the comfortablest place I knowed for us three was to make for the timber, and there make a stand. We were getting ready to give it to you, if it turned out you are all Injuns. Well, I'm powerfully glad to see you again, and that's sure. From his further conversation, we were informed that Jack Corbin and himself had made their trip to General Sheridan's headquarters without hindrance or obstacle being encountered on their way, and that after delivering the dispatches and being well entertained in the meantime, they, with one other scout, had been sent by the general to endeavor to meet us, bringing from him a package of orders and letters. While the column was overtaking us, and while California Joe, now in his element, was entertaining the attentive group of officers, scouts, and Osages who gathered around him to hear him relate in his quaint manner what he saw, heard, and told at General Sheridan's headquarters, I withdrew to one side and opened the large official envelope in which were contained both official and personal dispatches. These were eagerly read, and while the satisfaction derived from the perusal of some of the letters of a private and congratulatory nature from personal friends at Camp Supply was beyond expression, the climax of satisfaction was reached when my eye came to an official-looking document bearing the date and heading which indicated department headquarters as its source. We had but little further to go before going into camp for that night, and as the command had now overtaken us, 
we moved down to the timber and there encamped and in order that the approving words of our chief should be transmitted promptly to every individual of the command the line was formed and the following order announced to the officers and men headquarters department of the missouri in the field depot on the north canadian at the junction of beaver creek indian territory november twenty ninth eighteen sixty eight general field orders number six the major general commanding announces to this command the defeat by the seventh regiment of the cavalry of a large force of cheyenne indians under the celebrated chief black kettle reinforced by the arapahoes under little raven and the kiowas under satana on the morning of the twenty seventh instant on the washita river near the antelope hills indian territory resulting in a loss to the savages of one hundred and three warriors killed including black kettle and capture of fifty-three squaws and children eight hundred and seventy-five ponies eleven hundred and twenty-three buffalo robes and skins five hundred and thirty-five pounds of powder one thousand and fifty pounds of lead four thousand arrows seven hundred pounds of tobacco besides rifles pistols saddles bows lariats and immense quantities of dried meat and other winter provisions the complete destruction of their village and almost total annihilation of this indian band the loss to the seventh cavalry was two officers killed major joel h elliott and captain lewis hamilton and nineteen enlisted men three officers wounded brevet lieutenant colonel albert barnett's badly brevet lieutenant colonel t w custer and second lieutenant t z march slightly and eleven enlisted men the energy and rapidity shown during one of the heaviest snowstorms that has visited this section of the country with the temperatures below freezing point and the gallantry and bravery displayed resulted in such signal success reflect to the highest credit upon both the officers and the men of the seventh cavalry and the major general commanding while regretting the loss of such gallant officers as major elliott and captain hamilton who fell while gallantly leading their men desires to express his thanks to the officers and men engaged in the battle of the washita and especial congratulations are tendered to their distinguished commander brevet major general george a custer for the efficient and gallant services rendered which have characterized the opening of the campaign against hostile indians south of the arkansas by command of major general p h sheridan signed j schuler crosby brevet lieutenant colonel a d c a a a general this order containing as it did the grateful words of approval from our revered commander went far to drown the remembrance of the hunger cold and danger encountered by the command in the resolute and unified effort made by it to thoroughly discharge its duty words like these emanating from the source they did and upon an occasion such as this was were immeasurably more welcome gratifying and satisfactory to the pride of the officers and men than would have been the reception of a budget of brevets worded in the regular stereotype form and distributed in a promiscuous manner 
having but little regard to whether the recipient had bravely impaired his life on the battlefield in behalf of his country or had taken particular care to preserve that life upon some field far removed from battle the last camp before we reached camp supply was on wolf creek about ten miles from general sheridan's headquarters the weather had now moderated to the mildest winter temperature the snow having melted and disappeared from this point i sent a courier to general sheridan soon after going into camp informing him of our whereabouts at the distance from his camp and that we would reach the latter in such an hour in the forenoon when the officers and men of my command would be pleased to march in review before him and his staff as we finished our return march from the opening of the winter campaign officers and men in view of this prepared to put on their best appearance and the appointed hour on the morning of december second the command moved out of camp and began its last day's march toward camp supply considering the hard and trying character of the duty they had been engaged in since leaving camp supply the appearance of the officers men and horses were far better than might naturally have been expected of them when we arrived within a couple of miles of general sheridan's headquarters we were met by one of the staff officers with a message from the general that it would give him great pleasure to review the seventh cavalry as proposed that he and his staff would be mounted and take up a favorable position for the review near headquarters in approaching camp supply by the route we were marching a view of the camp and depot is first gained from the point where the high level plain begins to descend gradually to form the valley in the middle of which camp supply is located so that by having a man on the lookout to report when the troops should first make their appearance on the height overlooking beaver creek the general was enabled not only to receive timely notice of our approach but to take position with his staff to witness our march down the long gradual slope leading into the valley the day was all we could wish a bright sun overhead and favorable ground for the maneuvering of troops i had taken the precaution to establish the formation of the marching column before we should appear in view from general sheridan's camp so that after our march began down the beautifully descending slope to the valley no change was made in many respects the column we formed was unique in appearance first rode our osage guides and trailers dressed and painted in the extremest fashions of war according to their rude customs and ideas as we advanced these warriors chanting their war songs firing their guns in triumph and at intervals gave utterance to their shrill war whoops next came the scouts riding abreast with california joe astride his faithful mule bringing up the right but unable even during this ceremonious and formal occasion to dispense with his pipe immediately in rear of the scouts rode the indian prisoners under guard all mounted on indian ponies and in their dress conspicuous by its bright colors many of them wearing the scarlet blanket so popular with the wild tribes presenting quite a contrast to the dull and motley colors worn by the scouts some little distance in rear came the troops formed in column of platoons the leading platoon preceded by the band playing gary owen being comprised of the sharpshooters under colonel cook followed in succession by the squadrons in the regular order of march 
In this order and arrangement we marched proudly in front of our chief, who, as the officers rode by giving him the military salute with the sabre, returned their formal courtesy by a graceful lifting of his cap and a pleased look of recognition from his eye, which spoke of his approbation in language far more powerful than studied words could have done. In speaking of the review afterwards, General Sheridan said the appearance of the troops with the bright rays of the sun reflecting from their burnished arms and equipments as they advanced in beautiful order and precision down the slope, the band playing and the blue of the soldiers' uniforms slightly relieved by the gaudy colors of the Indians, both captives and Osages, the strangely fantastic part played by the Osage guides, their shouts, chanting, their war songs, and firing their guns in the air, all combined to render the scene one of the most beautiful and highly interesting he remembered ever having witnessed. After marching in review, the troops were conducted across the plain to the border of Beaver Creek, about a quarter of a mile from General Sheridan's camp, where we pitched our tents and prepared to enjoy a brief period of rest. We had brought with us on our return march from the battleground of the Washita the remains of our slain comrade, Captain Lewis McLean Hamilton. Arrangements were at once made upon our arrival at Camp Supply to offer the last formal tribute of respect and affection which we as his surviving comrades could pay, as he had died a soldier's death, so like a soldier he should be buried. On the evening of the day after our arrival at Camp Supply, the funeral took place. A little knoll not far from camp was chosen as the resting place to which we were to consign the remains of our departed comrade. In the arrangements for the conduct of the funeral ceremonies, no preliminary or important detail had been omitted to render the occasion not only one of imposing solemnity, but deeply expressive of the high esteem in which the deceased had been held by every member of the command. In addition to the eleven companies of the 7th Cavalry, the regular garrison of Camp Supply numbering several companies in the 3rd Regular Infantry, the regiment in which Captain Hamilton first entered the regular service, was also in attendance. The body of the deceased was carried in an ambulance as a hearse and covered with a large American flag, the ambulance was preceded by Captain Hamilton's squadron, commanded by Brevet Lieutenant Colonel T.B. Weir, and was followed by his horse, covered with a mourning sheet and bearing on the saddle the same in which Captain Hamilton was seated when he received his death wound, the saber and belt and reversed top boots of the deceased. The pallbearers were Major General Sheridan, Brevet Lieutenant Colonels J. Schuler Crosby, W. W. Cook and T. W. Custer, Brevet Major W. W. Beebe, Lieutenant Joseph Hall, and myself. Our sojourn at Camp Supply was to be brief. We arrived there on the 2nd of December, and in less than one week we were to be in the saddle with our numbers more than doubled by reinforcements, and again wending our way southward over the route we had so lately passed over. Before setting out on the last expedition, I had stated to the officers in a casual manner that all parties engaged in the conduct of the contemplated campaign against the Indians 
must reconcile themselves in advance, no matter how the expedition might result to becoming the recipients of censure and unbounded criticism, that if we failed to engage and whip the Indians, labor as we might to accomplish this, the people in the West, particularly along and near the frontier, those who had been victims of the assaults made by Indians, would denounce us in unmeasured terms as being inefficient or lukewarm in the performance of our duty, whereas if we should find and punish the Indians as they deserve, a wail would rise up from the horrified humanitarians throughout the country, and we would be accused of attacking and killing friendly and defenseless Indians. My predictions proved true. No sooner was the intelligence of the Battle of the Washita flashed over the country than the anticipated cry was raised. In many instances it was emanated from a class of persons truly good in themselves and in their intentions, but who were familiar to only a very limited degree with the dark side of the Indian question, and whose ideas were of the sentimental order. There was another class, however, equally loud in their utterances of pretended horror, who were actuated by pecuniary motives alone, and who, from their supposed or real intimate knowledge of the Indian character and of the true merits of the contest between the Indians and the government, were able to give some weight to their expressed opinions and assertions of alleged facts. Some of these last described actually went so far as to assert not only that the village we had attacked and destroyed was that of Indians who had always been friendly and peaceable towards the whites, but that many of the warriors and chiefs were partially civilized and had actually borne arms in the Union Army during the War of Rebellion. The most astonishing fact connected with these assertions was not that they were uttered, but that many well-informed people believed them. The government, however, was in earnest in its determination to administer proper and deserved punishment to the guilty, and as a mark of approval of the opening event of the winter campaign, the following telegram from the Secretary of War was transmitted to us at Camp Supply. Lieutenant General Sherman, St. Louis, Missouri. War Department, Washington City, December 2nd, 1868. I congratulate you, Sheridan and Custer, on the splendid success with which your campaign has begun. Ask Sheridan to send forward the names of officers and men deserving of special mention. Signed, J.M. Schofield, Secretary of War. It was impracticable to comply with the request contained in the closing portion of the dispatch from the Secretary of War, for the gratifying reason that every officer and man belonged to the expedition had performed his full part in rendering the movement against the hostile tribes a complete success. End of chapter 16, part 2